Hey, this is A New Bazaar. I'm Cardiff Garcia. Coming up on today's show... It has a huge economic effect because this is ultimately where jobs come from. The economist Chang Tai She on what happens when the economy stops wasting the talent of its workers. So depending on what you know or what you believe about the U.S. economy, the following series of facts that I'm about to read to you may end up striking you as either shocking or totally unsurprising. Here they are. Back in 1960, only 6% of all the doctors and lawyers in the country were either women or non-white men, which means obviously that all the other doctors and lawyers, the overwhelming majority, were white men. Now, fast forward half a century to the year 2010. Well, by that year, women and non-white men were up to about 38% of doctors and lawyers. By the way, that is still a lot less than their overall share of the U.S. population. But clearly, women and non-white men did start getting more and more of these jobs. And not just as doctors and lawyers, but also jobs in other similar high-paying professions. And this trend, this convergence, this integration of women and non-white men into this part of the labor market, it happened for a couple of reasons. One is that access to the higher education that you need to get these jobs has improved. And the other reason is that there is less discrimination in terms of who gets hired into the workplace than there used to be. Still way too much of it, to be sure, just less than before. And these are just some of the findings of an incredible economics paper that was published a couple of years ago by today's guest, Chang Tai She and his co-authors. The paper is called The Allocation of Talent and U.S. Economic Growth. And it also found that this deepening integration of the labor market accounted for a huge share of the economic growth in the country that took place during that half a century from 1960 to 2010. And as Chang Tai explains in our chat today, It wasn't just good for the specific women and non-white men who moved into these professions. It ended up being good for everyone, good for the entire economy. And at its center, what the paper is really about, actually what a lot of Chang Tai's work is about, is what happens when people are finally able to apply their talents in ways that best take advantage of those talents. And what a tragedy it is for all of us when they can't. Sadly, though, as Chang Tai also says, this is not an entirely happy story, mainly because there is still so much progress left to be made, but also because the progress that has been made has been slowing down. And for some people, it might even be reversing. Now, before we start the chat, I also want to say that for this episode, I owe a big thanks to the journalist Jim Tankersley of The New York Times. Jim published a book a couple of years ago called The Riches of This Land, which first pointed me to Chang Tai's work. And it's also just a great, great book. It tells a new story about the rise of the American middle class back in the period after World War II, then how the middle class stagnated over the subsequent decades and how it might someday be reinvigorated again. And that is also very much a subject of today's conversation with Chang Tai She. So here it is. Chang Tai She, welcome to the New Bazaar. Great to be here. Here's where I want to start. Throughout your body of work, in the title of a lot of your papers, 
the word allocation shows up in some version, either allocation or misallocation. And I'd love for you to just tell us what that word means and how it relates to your work and why the concept of allocation is so important to economics. Well, what the term allocation means is that a really important part in how an economy functions and whether an economy functions well or it doesn't function well is not really so much about how much of something an economy has, how much capital, how much labor, how much talent. So you can think about all the variety of resources that are that are available in the economy. And what I want to highlight is that it's not really about how much we have, but it's about how uh, what we do have is being spent, how it is being allocated, how, you know, about who gets what. Uh, and it's that question, who gets what, that I think is really central in trying to make sense about what when do economies function well and when is it that economies don't function well. So it's really that point, right? We should pay attention to the nitty-gritty details of how is it that an economy is actually functioning rather than just the total quantity of how much of the stuff it is that we have. Yeah, and I think that's a perfect way to introduce your big paper, which is titled The Allocation of Talent in U.S. Economic Growth. Because essentially what you're saying is that it doesn't matter if a lot of people in the economy have specific talents or the potential to develop specific talents, if they don't get an opportunity to actually use those talents in the labor market, if they don't have access to the jobs where they can apply their talents. And when that happens, when they don't have that access, it's both terrible for them, but it also turns out to be terrible for everyone else too, for the entire economy. Is that the right way to start thinking about this paper? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And maybe the way I'll illustrate it is through telling you the stories of two people. So the first person is a woman that you may have heard of called Sandra Day O'Connor, who became the Supreme Court Justice of the U.S. Your, your listeners may not know about her earlier history, but it's actually a pretty interesting one, that she graduated from Stanford Law School in 1952, which is a period where none of the law firms wanted to hire women. So she tried and she couldn't find a job. Uh, this is Sandra Day O'Connor we're talking about. So she gave up and her first job, people may not know this, but for the first decade of her life after she graduated from law school, she worked as an administrator in, in the quartermaster general's office of the U.S. Army in Frankfurt, Germany. And so that, I think, is, is a prime example of what I mean by a misallocation of talent. Here's somebody who we know after the fact is one of the, the most brilliant legal minds of the country. And she spent 10 years in the boondogs not using any of these skills. And what happened to her is actually pretty interesting, too, that she came back to the U.S. in the early 1960s. And she also had the fortune of coming back to the U.S. at a time when the world was changing. So she came back to Arizona. And she gradually found a legal job, and then and and the rest is history, so to speak. But the thing I want you to think about in her case is not so much what happens to her, because she eventually did find a legal job, but to think about all of the other people, all the other women in the 1950s that maybe had the talent to become lawyers, but sort of knew what they were up against, and then very rationally decided to do something else. 
because by the time the 1960s came around, they were already in their 40s. They were already in their 30s, and they were locked in into whatever it is that they had chosen. Yeah, that's such an interesting example because it's one where we know that the talent was initially stifled. I mean, there's no question that Sandra Day O'Connor had the legal talent, as she would subsequently show. And it's also an example where because the times did start changing a little bit in the 1960s, which, of course, was the beginning of the period of time that you studied in your paper, she was able to take advantage of those changing times. But you're right. She was clearly exceptional. And for a lot of other people, the changes just came too late or just didn't happen fast enough. Um, So, yeah. What is the second example? The other example is a case where it really did not get solved. So you may have seen in in the news in, in the last year or so about this Taiwanese semiconductor company called Taiwan Semiconductor that now is the dominant semiconductor company in the world. It has about a 70% share of the world market in uh, semiconductors. The history of this company was that it was founded in 1988 in Taiwan by this guy called Morris Tsang. Yeah, Chang Tai, just to jump in here real quick, because this is actually really important for our listeners who are not familiar with this company, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. It goes by TSMC as well. The reason it's been in the news is because there's been this massive boom in demand for semiconductors in the last couple of years, and there's a global shortage of semiconductors. And a lot of companies throughout the world, including a lot of American companies, rely on Taiwan Semiconductor, this company, TSMC, for their semiconductors. Because semiconductors, of course, are a hugely important part of the supply chain. You need them to make electronics and cars and all kinds of other things. And this company is the dominant semiconductor company in the world. And Morris Chang is the founder. So, yeah, uh, back to the story, Chang Tai. What should we know about his story, and what it says about the misallocation of talent. Morris, if you go back and look at his history, he came to the U.S. in 1949. He was a refugee from the Chinese Civil War, and he went to college in the U.S., and then he found a job in in Texas Instruments uh, doing semiconductors. He worked for Texas Instruments for 30 years. And if you listen to us, or if if you look a little bit into his life history, The reason he left Texas Instruments and he went to Taiwan was because he said that, look, he was tired of being passed over for promotions because he was Asian. He says, I know that I can do this. I'm much better than all these other people that are being promoted over me. But I happen not to be a white male. So in 1986, 1985, he decided, he said, screw it. I'm going to move to to a place where there are no glass ceilings, where my talent can be better used. So he founded Taiwan Semiconductor, and Taiwan Semiconductor is now the dominant company in the world, and Texas Instruments is completely out of the semiconductor market. So that's also an example where it wasn't solved for him, right? So the U.S. economy has has suffered, you know, all this angst that we have about what's happening to our supply chain and, and about the loss of our dominant technologies, at least in this particular really important technology, it's a direct consequence of the misallocation of talent. So I think that the story of these two people, I think, tells us two things. One is that it, the story of Senator O'Connor tells us about how much has changed in the U.S. in the last 50 years. Part of what we 
the story that we're telling in this paper is that one of the most important things that has happened in the U.S. is basically what happened to Sandra Day O'Connor. The story of Morris is the story of uh, still a lot of the unrealized potential, the misallocation of talent that is still present in the U.S. and how much further we still have to go and how much better our economy can be if we work harder at these problems. Yeah, I want to ask you actually about the origins of the idea for this paper, because you told Jim Tankersley for his book, The Riches of This Land, that the original idea actually came out of some thinking that you and a colleague were doing about the Indian caste system. So keeping in mind that our listeners have not yet read your paper um, and hopefully will after they hear this podcast, can you just kind of give us the background idea for what you were looking for in in the light of the Indian caste system and, and where the idea came from? It's funny that this is something that Jim picked up on. But I was telling Jim <laughs> about a, a visit that I had made to India in 2008. And I was in, in this place called, in the city called Patna. And one morning I was meeting with some of the NGOs. And and there was an NGO group that I was working with that was trying to help uh, people from this caste in India called the rat catchers caste. And if you are born into the caste, your profession has to be that your is to catch rats. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what else you can do with your life. You belong to the rat catcher's caste. Everybody knows that you're from the rat catcher's caste. So that's what you're destined to do. And the thing about what, if you know a little bit about India, India has thousands of these castes. There's a rat catcher's caste. There's a caste for people, for military officers. And it's a system in which what you do with your life is, is basically determined for you at the time of your birth. And it struck me that this has to be one of the biggest things that is holding India back. And then I read a little bit about Indian history. And yeah, it's well recognized that this is something that is holding India. This is one of the main things that Mahatma Gandhi campaigned on, that he wanted to get rid of this caste system. And when India became an independent country, they this is one of the things they said that they were going to do, so much so that they basically banned any discussion of caste. And the second thing which uh, is that they also made it illegal to collect any data on caste in any of the official studies. So it's one of these so funny things. you couldn't things study that, it then. Exactly, exactly. So we couldn't study it. But it's one of these things where everybody knows it's there. Everybody Everybody knows what, what the cast of anybody, but there's no way to try to measure it systematically. And, and then we basically start to think of what if we take this idea and think about where is it that we can measure and where else do we think that something like this might really be empirically important. Uh, and we settled on doing this in the U.S. It's, it's somewhat of a devastating indictment on the U.S. economy uh, as it stood at least in, in the middle of the 20th century and in the subsequent decades, that you found this parallel between the Indian caste system that keeps people in these, you know, quote-unquote lower castes. Um, and then you thought that, like, well, actually, something like this is also happening in the United States. We just don't refer to it as a caste system. That, that to me, is quite a striking parallel to draw. Let me just say this in defense of the U.S. that that <laughs> partly 
part of the reason that we did this is because this is one of the few, the U.S. is one of the few places. In fact, it's really the only place that we could find in which something big did happen to the U.S. caste system, uh, which was the period of the last 50 years. And so that we could empirically test whether these forces might matter, right? But then, you know, any objective person looking at the world or looking at the U.S. in the 1950s and the 19 or the early 1960s, I think it's hard not to look at the history of the period and say, yeah, it, it really very much was like a caste system. Or it's it's hard not to look at the U.S. today and 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 to see that there are certain aspects of the U.S. that still resemble a caste system. Yeah, Chang Tai, can you elaborate on that a bit? Uh, how specifically? Has the U.S. economy resembled a caste system? Yeah. So what we're what we're talking about is that when you look at the world, when you look at the U.S. in the 1950s and the 1960s, and if you look at, say, what women were doing with their lives and you look at what African-Americans were doing with, with their lives, it looked nothing like what white men were doing with their lives. And if you believe that people have... God-given abilities, they have God-given talents, and everybody has a different set of talents, like you have a talent as a journalist, I have a talent as an economics professor, somebody has a talent to be a basketball player, etc. The goal should be, both for our own individual fulfillment and also for society as a whole, for each one of us to find what is it that we're good at, what is it that we love, and to do it, right? But then when you look at the world, when you look at what what these different groups of people were doing in the 1950s, it didn't look anything like that. It looked very far away from that. So if you look at, say, doctors in 1960, you find that something like 94% of doctors in the U.S. were white men. And it's sort of hard to believe that it's a case that it's only white men that have this natural talent to become doctors and nobody else has the talent to become a doctor. So in that sense, it looks exactly like the Indian caste system. It almost looks like certain groups of people are born into the doctor's caste and other groups of people are born in the non-doctor's caste. It doesn't matter what your native ability is. So that's what the world will look like in 1960. Now, part of what we know is that this is something that has changed a lot in the U.S. in the last uh, 50 years. So basically, the, you know, what's happened is that whatever it is that prevented women and people of color from choosing to become doctors, and not just doctors, because what we do is that we look across all the different occupations, this has changed. And, and we sort of think we know what happened, that the 1960s, the 1970s was a period where of the civil rights movement, where there was lots of laws that were being passed. This was a period where institutions of higher education were changing and they were opening up opportunities for people. And what we wanted to say is that we normally think about this as a civil rights issue. We normally think about this as an issue of social justice. Okay? And what we wanted to say, what we wanted to say is that, no, it's a lot more than that. It's not just a civil rights issue. It's not just a social justice issue, but it's also a hugely important economic issue because it affects what people do with their lives and what people do with their lives is central to the way that the American economy functions. Yeah, and I want to now highlight a couple more of the interesting findings in your paper. You find that women overall, women of all races, 
For them, the main reason that they have increasingly been able to take these high-skill, higher-paying jobs is specifically that barriers to education have fallen. And you note, for example, that you know, a lot of high-quality universities did not even admit women until as late as the 1960s and 1970s. That has changed, and now women are actually graduating from college at a much higher rate than men are graduating. The story for black workers, men and women, is a little bit different. You find that it's a combination of both educational barriers falling and less discrimination over time in the workplace. So as we've discussed, there has been progress, but I want to actually turn now to the progress that still needs to be made, the progress that has not yet been made. Because even in 2010, which was the last year you studied in the paper, roughly 60% of the doctors and lawyers were still white men. And that's obviously less than in the past, but the white male population in the whole country is only about 30%. So there's still a lot of room for further progress integrating women and non-white men into parts of the labor market. There's still a lot of progress that is left to be made before the composition of people who have these great high-paying jobs looks like the country overall. So we've talked about the progress that has been made. Can you talk a little bit now about the progress that still needs to be made and if the economy is still headed in the right direction? Absolutely. So to go back that the main force that is behind the improvement in the allocation of talent for women, that it's about the improvement in education opportunities. One of the facts about the world now, the the U.S. now, is that uh, women... Are, have much better educational attainment than men. Uh, that that now when, when you look at schooling, it's, it looks like it's the men that are disadvantaged relative to women. But in terms, to go back to the point that you just made, you don't see that in terms of the changes in the occupational distribution. That the changes in the occupational distribution, you know, in the last 10 years or so, they seem to have gone backwards. So that's that's a first point. And the second thing, which is where we want to go next, if, if there's a way in which we can get some empirical traction on this, is that we think that there are also big changes that are occurring within this group that we've just called white male. So we've just taken that block, that group of 100 million people in the U.S., and in our empirical analysis, we don't really look at what's happening within that group. But then I guess our prior is that there's also a lot of misallocation that has gotten worse within that group uh, over the last few decades. When you say that you you haven't broken it down in your empirical work to this point, uh, this group of 100 million white males, you're saying that there's a lot of heterogeneity within the population of white males. There's people with advanced education, there's people without education, there's people who live in different parts of the country, there's geographical differences, things of that nature. Is that what you mean? That's exactly what what I mean. So one way to ask the question is, okay, in 2021, what is the caste system in the U.S.? My prior would be that the main caste system in the U.S. now is basically where you live, like it's uh, where you live and where you grow up. Do you grow up in Boston or or Washington, D.C. or San Francisco, or do you grow up in Reading, Pennsylvania or Normal, Illinois? That seems to me like, uh, like where I see the modern American caste system. 
And you see this play out in a bunch of ways. Like you've seen this play out in terms of our politics. You, you've seen this play out in terms of the differences in economic outcomes. So we've gotten better in terms of one particular type of a caste system, and we've gotten worse in terms of another type of a caste system. That's super interesting. And Chang Tai, I know that you said that as of right now, these are trends that you suspect are happening, but are not yet part of the empirical research that you've done to this point. Are these trends something that you can study empirically? How hard would that be? Like, so, so here's the problem. The, the problem, the empirical problem we face is that when you look at it, somebody who's 40 years old, you need to know what their life circumstance was like when they were 10. Right? And, and that's pretty hard data to get uh, mm-hmm. just because you need to, you would need to be able to follow people over a long period of time. And the big data sets that we have in the U.S. don't do that. We only know what you're doing right now, but we don't know where you were 30 years ago. Yeah. And your your paper itself. So leaving aside um, what you're what you're looking at in terms of the last 10 years or so, your paper itself, which covers the period 1960 to 2010, um, shows that there is this convergence. I'm curious to know if you have any thoughts on what happened within different periods inside of that half a century from 1960 to 2010, because you've mentioned that there was a very special time in the 1960s and the 1970s, which included, you know, uh, what was still then uh, quite a healthy American middle class. There was a lot of convergence. There was the civil rights movement. Um, do you think that something might have changed uh, a bit later on, perhaps in the 1980s and 1990s and 2000s, that might have coincided, for example, with what happened to overall productivity growth in the economy during that time, which has kind of stagnated. It hasn't been as impressive since roughly the end of the 70s and early 80s as it was in the decades before that. That's a good question, Cardiff. I mean, I guess we didn't link that, uh, but it is true that the progress for African-Americans primarily took place in the 60s and the 70s. And after the 70s, it basically stalled. Uh, The progress for women was more gradual. What is the link between the the slowdown in productivity? It's possible. It's possible that the high growth and the solid middle class that that we had in the first 10 or 20 years of the period that we're looking at is linked to the mechanism that we're describing. And then the slowdown is also due to the slowdown in terms of that progress. It's possible. But as with whenever you're making statements about what's happening in the overall economy and link it to one particular force, you always have to be cautious, right? Because there are lots of things that are going on in terms of the overall economy. Yeah. And let me ask then about something specific that you did find in your paper in terms of the effects on the whole economy. The effects of women and non-white men increasingly getting more of these higher skilled, higher paying jobs during that half a century that you studied, you found that this trend accounted for 40 percent of the per capita GDP growth during that time. Or to put that in simpler terms, 40 percent of the economic growth. That is just an enormous, enormous figure. And a crucial point you make is that this trend did not just benefit the specific people who got those jobs in those high-paying professions. The trend benefited everyone, the whole economy, including white men. So can you just kind of take us through how that works? 
You may ask that if you are a white man, you can ask, okay, great. I sort of like civil rights in the abstract. I'm for social justice in, in the abstract. But what's in it for me in terms of my paycheck? The answer is that how the rest of the economy functions is crucial to your own standard of living. Uh, so to go back to example number two that I gave you, that I gave you about this guy called Morris Jang, the economy did not function for him. It did not fun function for him. So if you had a job in Texas Instruments back in 1980, now you're out of luck. If these social institutions within Texas Instruments have functioned better uh, back in the 1970s and the 1980s, Texas Instruments would be the dominant company in the world. And there, there, there would be hundreds of thousands of, of jobs, not just in Texas Instruments, but in all of the other supporting in industries surrounding semiconductors, all the packaging, all the semiconductor design companies, all the rest of it would, would have been there. So even if you are not directly affected by the fact that he was screwed, the fact that he was screwed meant that at the end of the day, you were screwed. It, it matters tremendously for your own standard of living. That's sort of the point that we're making, that it, it has a huge economic effect because this is ultimately where jobs come from. It, it, where jobs come from is when people are find the thing that they're best at, they create companies, and that's sort of the, you know, the source of innovation. Yeah, there, there's a, a nice alignment there between what's great for the economy and also what's just a great kind of humanistic story because it's easy to think about this, again, in these very abstract terms of, well, there was a convergence uh, that led to a decline in the share of white men that are in these professions, and that led to 40%. That accounted for 40% of economic growth. And now we're throwing all these numbers out there. But what we're actually talking about is people, lots and lots of individuals being able to realize their own potential, which has all kinds of effects, both psychic and economic effects. I mean, it, it's people being able to have greater choice in their life. It's people who are realizing what it is that they're capable of. And also, it's great for everyone else. In other words, it's not just great for them. It's great for all of us. And so you can look at it in isolation and say something that is profoundly true, which is that these barriers to education and these barriers in the workplace are full of injustices and inequities, and they should be removed on their own terms. And that is absolutely true. And frankly, that's probably the first thing that should be said about them. And there's also this secondary effect, which is that when people are able to realize their potential, it's just magnificent for all the rest of us too, because that's where innovation comes from. It's where jobs come from. And it's where overall economic growth comes from, which also leads to more opportunities for all of us. Like it's just such a it's such a, a deeply happy story when this convergence happens. And conversely, it's also a deeply unhappy one when the convergence slows um, and when we see that the progress is slowing at a time when frankly we're just not there yet in terms of you know equalizing everything for people. It, it is both of those things at the same time, which is why I think I think this paper has radically changed how I look at the economy, but it also contains all these different multitudes inside of it. And I'm curious to know how you think about it in that sort of philosophical sense, how you think about this work you've been doing. I mean, I couldn't have put it better, Cardiff. I, I would just say that 
part of the reason that we started on this was because we've had this agenda. So it's primarily the agenda that I've had with, with my longstanding co-author, Pete Clino at Stanford, that we started to look at how capital and labor were being allocated across firms. And then we started to, you know, that, and it dawned on us that that's not the only dimension of allocation that matters. So all I would say is, is that this is just but one dimension of allocation. Uh, that it's about what people choose to do with their lives. There's the traditional view of allocation that economists have, which is how do you allocate resources across companies, whether some companies have too much, other companies have too little. And then there's also the question about how are resources allocated across different parts of the country. That's that's also another important part of uh, allocation. So once you start to think about this, there are many dimensions of allocation, and these are all just different pieces of how a complex economy functions. It's people making choices in terms of what they do. It's people making choices in terms of where they want to live and work. It's banks making choices in terms of where they want to allocate their capital. So it's all these different pieces, right? It's uh, all these different pieces that go to the nitty gritty of what makes a dynamic, well-functioning economy. Yeah, and by the way, you you've now brought up a couple of times the importance of geography uh, in terms of this same story of convergence in the labor market. And uh, I want to just kind of turn to that briefly if we can, because you have another paper that goes by the title Housing Constraints and Spatial Misallocation. And it seems to me like this work is of a piece with your work on talent allocation, on labor allocation. Um, And it's all about how people sometimes, even if they can take jobs that they're qualified for and where they can best apply their talents, end up not being able to take those jobs because they are geographically barred from it because they can't find a place to live that they can afford effectively. Uh, Give us a sense of what's in this paper and how it connects to your earlier story. Yeah, so it's the same idea that if you were to put it in terms of a caste system, that another dimension of the modern American caste system is that the job opportunities are in some parts of the country and the workers are in a different part of the country and they very rationally choose not to go to the places where there are jobs. And let me just, as a backstory to this, an important part of how the American economy has functioned for the last 150 years, it's that some industries rise and other industries die. So if you think back to what the U.S. economy was like 100 years ago, most of us were farmers, uh, were farmers, but now farming is less than half percent of uh, GDP. Or if you think back to the world in 1910, there was a huge industry that made horseshoes. But then Henry Ford came along and basically killed off that industry uh, because people didn't need horseshoes a- anymore because the horses were no longer the, the main mo- mo- mode of uh, transportation. Now, related to that, whenever industries rise and some industries collapse, a lot of times, not always, a lot of times, the new industries are in places of the country that are different from places where the collapsing industries are located. And a really important part of how the U.S. economy has functioned until maybe the last 30 years or so is that people always were able to move away from the places where industries were collapsing to places where the industries were rising. 
there's the, the movement away from farms to places like Chicago and New York. Or in the 1930s in the U.S., there was a migration of about 8 million African-Americans from the U.S. South towards places like Buffalo. Chicago was another big place uh, uh, because that's where the jobs were. Now, you can think about in the same way that uh, the, in the same way that you think about the allocation of talent that we were talking about, that basically it's about where your labor market opportunities are, where is it that you can best deploy your skills, your God-given talents. And what we want for an economy to function well is that we want people not to just choose the, the job and the occupation that suits them the best, but you also want them to be able to live and live and work in a place where they can fully utilize those skills. What has happened in the U.S.? Since roughly, I, I would time this to roughly the early 1980s, and maybe this goes to the point about the slowdown of growth of, of, of the U.S., that job opportunities in the U.S. has mostly occurred in two groups of cities in, in the U.S. So one group of cities, I would say roughly are cities in the U.S. South, places like Houston and Phoenix and Dallas and Atlanta and Charlotte and the uh, Raleigh to Durham area. What you see in those places is it's the continuation of what the U.S. economy has looked like for the hundred years prior to that. That there was lots of lots of you know, new industries were emerging, new companies were being set up, and people were flocking to these cities. These cities grew. That's like talent being allocated in an efficient way, but geographically. Okay. There's another group of cities where job opportunities have come from. These are places like Boston uh, or the San Francisco and the Bay Area where there have been huge growth in terms of, of the demand for jobs. So I want to be careful in my language. But what has happened is that there's also been a social movement, that a local social movement that has made it very, very difficult to build the housing that is necessary to accommodate this increased demand for workers. So here's this basic fact that, that despite all the stories that we tell about all these labor market, about all this growth that's coming from the San Francisco Bay Area or from Boston or from New York, the total number of actual jobs in these places in the last 30 years okay, has fallen. Okay, the total number of people who have worked in these places has gone down. What you see is a growing misallocation of workers across space, right? So it's like there's this caste system, uh, but it's based on geography that has gotten worse over time. Now, you could say, to so go back to a question that you asked, somebody that's in Cincinnati, which is one of the, the cities that, that hasn't done that well, uh, why do you care what happens to somebody in uh, San Francisco? And the answer is because the way that the economy functions is that when you have workers move from one place to the other, what that does is that it raises wages and it raises standards of living for everybody. And then that is one of the key things that hasn't happened in the, the U.S. So that's another dimension of the caste system in, in the U.S. that has gone backwards. Can, can you explain real quick, can you explain why it raises wages for everybody and not just for the person in Cincinnati who can move to San Francisco? In other words, why would 
the greater ability of that person in Cincinnati to afford yeah. a place to live in San Francisco, raise wages, not just for them, but for the whole economy. It's a basic mechanism that we see, that we see operating in the labor market. That is, think about what happens to the employer in Cincinnati when a bunch of workers leave, okay? What does that employer face? The employer faces a labor shortage. That actually is a wonderful thing because that is the only way in which wages go up, right? I mean, no employer is going to give you a pay raise out of the goodness of her heart. Uh, They give you a pay raise when they're forced to. So the fact is that there hasn't been a labor shortage in Cincinnati. And the reason there hasn't been a labor shortage is because the workers are not leaving. Okay. And one final question, Chang Tai. We've spoken so much about what happens when the economy stops wasting the talent of its workers and also how much talent is still being wasted now in the U.S. economy. What are you hoping for in the future? What do you think could lead the economy to make more progress in terms of better allocating the talent of its workers? The main thing that I'm looking at is that what I think is the biggest divide in, in the country now, which is the divide between urban America and non-urban America. And we, I, I do think it's, it's the thing that is killing us as a country. Um, How so? It's killing us in terms of our politics. It's killing us in the sense that we have two very parts of the country that are just, that look more and more like separate places, like separate countries, like the the people in the cities think that the people who don't live in the cities, that they are from a different planet. And and then the same goes from the people on the other side. And so I think that politically, socially, it is killing us. So I think that it's also just a huge loss to our society when you have lots of people with talent that don't have access to the same opportunities. So what what I'm looking for and what what I'm hopeful for is ways in which we can try to look for concrete things to help us bridge that divide. Something that that really struck me last year when a lot of people couldn't take the college entrance examination, they couldn't take the SAT and the ACT. So as a consequence of that, almost every single American university, they suspended the use of the SATs and the ACTs. And I was really astonished by how much that led to a surge in applications. So it's like this one thing, right? That this one thing that I I don't think anybody ever really thought much about, but it it may have been a significant barrier to access to opportunity for many people. And and I do think that there are lots of things like this. So I, I do hope that we as a society, that we spend more time looking for things like this instead of looking for things that separate and that divide us and to look more for things in which we can help each other instead of thinking of, of, of things in which we demonize each other. So that's the main thing. I, I think that it's it's the central issue in the U.S. now. So it's things like this. It's things like, you know, I do think like housing policy plays a very important role in that because part of what access to opportunity is also about access to housing in places where the jobs are. And that's the other thing that is missing. So access to schools, access to jobs, access to opportunities more broadly. And I think that's a good place to wrap things up. Uh, Chang Tai She, thank you so much for this really wonderful chat. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks.
And that's our show for this week. We are going to post links to Chang Tai's papers on talent allocation and spatial misallocation in the show notes for today's episode. And we'll also post a link to Jim Tankersley's book, The Riches of This Land. The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio, which is a partnership between me and, very much representing the riches of this podcast, executive producer Amy Keene. Each week, Adrian Lilly makes the voices you hear on the show sound mellifluous or melodious or at least tolerable as our sound engineer. And this beautiful theme music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Check them out. And please follow The New Bazaar on your app of choice. Leave us a review or tell a friend. It's how people find out about us and also how we can ensure that we can keep making the show. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email Amy and me at hello at bizarreaudio.com. That's B-A-Z-A-A-R-A-U-D-I-O.com. Even though we can't respond to all of them, by the way, we do see every email that comes our way. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>